Hello and welcome again to the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, which is going to be published next week. And with me this week is uh, Simon Elliott, Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterford Securities, our regular companion on these podcasts. Let's start off with the market, Simon. We know that November was a terrific month for the equity markets. We've come to the end of that month. Uh, what's been the story in the first week of December? So December has got off to a pretty decent start, actually. The the UK market in the form of the FTSE All Share is probably going to end up the week around about 3%. The investment company sector, probably a little bit behind that, but somewhere between 2 and 2.5%. But interesting, we've seen the sector average discount narrow in again, probably started the week um, not too far off 4%, uh, and it was closing in about 2.5% uh, as we came towards the end of the week. So that's uh, quite an interesting development and tells you something about the demand that uh, we're seeing for investment trust companies at the moment. Just to remind you, towards the end of September, that sector average discount was out to about 8% or so. So a significant re-rating since then. So we've come pretty much uh, full circle to uh, where we were at the start of the year in terms of average discount. And there does seem to be a significant uh, surge in confidence amongst investors. We've seen a lot of Uh, retail buying and uh, some of the sentiment indicators that uh, analysts follow are now gone into the very bullish segment of the of the chart which typically suggests that we will have a bit of a pullback uh, at some point quite soon but we never know may last to the end of the year often does let's move on and see to some of the corporate activity we've had this week and let's start off with Invesco income growth uh, where there's a interesting development there. Perhaps you could uh, fill us in on that, Simon, and explain a little bit of the background there. Yeah, so just to remind you, Invesco Income Growth, which is in the UK equity income sector, back at the start of the year, the board announced a continuation vote, and that followed a period of underperformance and also a wide discount. We had that vote in September, and it passed, but 21% of the shares voted were actually against uh, continuation. So the board said they would duly consult their largest shareholders again. This week, they've announced merger proposals. Um, so not the first time this year that we've seen merger proposals. But in this instance, they're looking to merge Invesco Income Growth with the UK leg of another investment trust called Invesco Perpetual Select. This is a slightly unusual uh, investment trust. It actually has four share classes, uh, including the aforementioned UK equity growth share class, Um, But what they're going to look to do is kind of reposition that UK uh, equity portfolio. So it will be a carbon copy of the Invesco income growth portfolio. Kieran Mallon, who's been responsible for Invesco income growth since 2005, he will assume responsibility for uh, this UK share class. And the advantage for shareholders is that Invesco Perpetual Select uh, has historically pursued a a zero discount policy, if not zero, quite close to NAV. Uh, and so on the back of this news, we've seen a re-rating for Invesco Income Growth. Its share price has moved up on the back of this. So just to be clear, does that mean that Invesco Income Growth is going to continue to have a zero discount policy? Sorry, so to, to be clear, Invesco Income Growth will look to uh, liquidate. And I should say that uh, shareholders in Invesco Income Growth will be offered a, a cash exit for up to 30% of their holding and a rollover into Invesco Perpetual Select, the, the UK share class. So you might just tell us who are the shareholders in Invesco Perpetual Select and why was it structured in that way and when did it start off in operation? So there's a little bit of history with this one. For those people who remember Mercury Asset Management, going back in the midst of time, this investment trust was created as a tax-efficient vehicle for shareholders in Mercury Asset Management. It was originally called the Merrill Lynch Asset Allocator, but in 2006, 
uh, it was moved to uh, Invesco and they've been responsible for it since then. Uh, it's not the largest investment trust, it's fair to say, so all four legs combined um, probably have assets of about 110 million or so. So if and when this deal goes through, and that this too has to be uh, presumably approved by shareholders, uh, when this goes through, it will actually result in a single investment trust, which is, will it be bigger or less substantial than the uh, the current size of the two individual entities? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. Shareholders will have an opportunity to vote on this, and that's expected to happen in February next year. So at the moment, the UK leg of Invesco Perpetual Select has assets of around about 50 million or so, uh, probably just under that. So Invesco income growth is significantly larger than that, probably assets of about 170 million. So let's just assume that the the 30% cash exit, and that's at a 2.5% discount to NEV, uh, is fully taken up. It's still a reasonable amount of money that will be rolled across to Invesco Perpetual Select. And as you said, that will now be in the UK equity income sector. That's right. That would be the intention. So they will effectively look to to copy the portfolio for Invesco Income Growth. As I say, the manager, Kieran Mallon, uh, will take up responsibility for it. Uh, And I think there's an inference that they would um, obviously look to generate an attractive yield through that portfolio. So it's quite a complex one. And that just underlines uh, one of the issues around uh, investment trust, which is they have the great advantage of having as we believe, better corporate governance or more accountable corporate governance, and they have to obey or have to adhere to all the rules of the stock exchange and the listing requirements and so on, uh, which is a positive. But it does mean that when you get to a corporate event like this, it all does take some time. And of course, there have to be uh, shareholder votes. And in certain occasions, there have to be circulars as well, which involves fees, legal fees, accountancy fees, and so on. That's why it tends to take some time. And shareholders have to be given due notice and so on. So it's a That is a a complexity that the investment trust sector has, but it's worth it if the end result justifies the effort that goes into making sure the process runs smoothly. Let's move on and talk about uh, another investment trust where I have some personal knowledge, and that is Jupiter UK Growth. Perhaps you could summarize what's happened there, and I might make a comment on that. As regular listeners will know, I am a non-executive director of this trust. So at the end of September, Jupiter UK Growth announced that it was considering uh, liquidation uh, and a number of reasons for that, but I think size was quite high up the list. Uh, This week, they've announced proposals for liquidation and shareholders will be offered the choice of a rollover into the Brown Advisory Global Leaders Fund or cash. And the rollover will be on a cost and tax efficient basis. And we're going to find out a few more details in terms of the timing um, in due course. Yes, indeed. And I think uh, what I might comment there is that, uh, as you mentioned with the uh, Merrill Lynch asset allocator, it's often the case when you, if you decide that an investment trust has served its purpose and served its time, if you like, that as an alternative to liquidation, we do offer shareholders a rollover so that those who have embedded gains uh, can at least uh, defer their capital gains liability by rolling over into a vehicle on a tax efficient basis. I think it's fair to say it's quite common for when you're doing a rollover to, to roll over into either another investment trust. Uh, or into a fund which has a similar mandate. In this case, though, as you've mentioned, we find this follows a period of consultation with our shareholders, and it turned out that uh, the result of that consultation was the board felt quite strongly that uh, it would be 
better to go into a global rollover option, a global equity fund. That was the preference of many of our shareholders who we consulted, including the largest ones. And that's why we've chosen this particular fund, which is a global equity quality. They follow a quality growth style, which has been successful uh, and they have a good track record. So that's why we do that. You might just um, explain, uh, Simon, just exactly um, what a rollover is and how common they are and what the uh, practical implications of that are. Yeah, rollovers are, I think, reasonably common, uh, particularly, obviously, when a fund comes to the end of its life, either naturally or perhaps with shareholders pushing it. I mean, in terms of how it works, we see rollovers into open-ended funds or into investment trusts. It's probably fair to say that the, the former uh, might have cost advantages and uh, might prove to be slightly more straightforward. Um, with an investment trust, as, as mentioned, there's some corporate governance angles uh, and shareholder approval has to be obtained for all the different uh, elements. But yes, it's certainly not uh, uncommon across the investment trust universe. Okay, so let's move on and go back to the subject of fundraising. The market is strong. It's not surprising, therefore, that we're seeing quite a lot of fundraising, as we talked about last week and indeed for several weeks now. Certainly since September, there's been quite a spurt of new fundraising, and this week is no exception. Uh, let's start with Downing Renewables and Infrastructure Trust. Uh, this is one of a number of infrastructure trusts, I think, which have been active in this way. Uh, can you tell us the uh, story there? Yeah, so this week, Downing Renewables and Infrastructure Trust announced that they'd raised just short of £123 million through their IPO. They were targeting £200 million. Um, but they've still got it away. And as discussed in, in uh, recent weeks, to launch an investment trust is no mean feat. Uh, as the name would suggest, uh, they're going to be uh, investing in a portfolio of renewable energy and infrastructure assets uh, and quite diversified. So you're going to see wind, solar, hydro and geothermal type uh, assets in that portfolio when fully invested. They have um, a £70 million pipeline all lined up and they, they estimate they should be fully invested within about 12 months or so. The NAV target return, uh, they're aiming between about 65 and 7%. Uh, and in terms of the dividend yield, and, and yield is a big part of the infrastructure story, um, they're looking to pay uh, a dividend equivalent to 3% uh, in their first year, but then that will rise to 5% as they get fully invested. Um, Downing were looking to be a cornerstone investor uh, of this one. They were looking to put in £30 million. Downing being the, uh, the manager of the trust. So that's a new trust which is coming to the market for the first time. Uh, let's just talk next about the Renewables Infrastructure Group, TRIG, which has also been active at this time in the in the secondary market. That's right. They raised £200 million uh, through an oversubscribed placing. So again, following the pattern that we've seen for a number of these infrastructure funds, these things almost have their own momentum now. They've consistently trade on, on good premiums. And the way they tend to operate is that they get their, their capital invested uh, and then they effectively use uh, a credit facility um, to make further uh, investments. That's very much the case in this instance. The, the proceeds of the recent fundraising uh, will be used to pay down the debt. And also they've got some uh, existing commitments uh, on East Anglia One offshore wind farm. Uh, and they've got some pipeline assets lined up as well. So those new shares will start trading on the 15th of December, assuming shareholders approve at an EGM on the day before. So what impact will that have on the size of the Renewables Infrastructure Group? I know they've raised money before this year. This is not the first time that they've raised money. And $200 million is a is a decent chunk of money in this, even in this market. So how will they sit in the infrastructure sector at that point in terms of size? Yeah, so um, TRIG, uh, as this particular investment company is, is known, uh, it's certainly one of the largest uh, renewable infrastructure funds. Uh, it's market cap of about 
billion at the moment, not too far off uh, Greencoat UK Wind, who were really the pioneers in this particular space. They're probably just short of 2.4 billion uh, market cap at the moment. So they're kind of uh, racing each other neck and neck in terms of their assets at the moment. But, uh, you know, two very, very large funds now. And in this context, we might also then mention what's been happening at Premier Mighton Global Renewables Trust. This is a relatively uh, new vehicle, I think. And uh, what's been the story there? There's been some activity there. That's right. So um, in this particular instance, there was a rollover of a uh, ZDP, so zero dividend preference share. Um, and they announced this week that they'd actually raised um, about uh, £40 million worth of their new ZDP, uh, which has a life to 2025 uh, and offers a gross redemption yield of uh, equivalent to 5% per annum. This followed the maturity and the repayment of the 2020 ZDP, so existing holders have the chance to, to roll over, uh, subject to several conditions. But that previous issue was about £30 million, so obviously this is less. So as a result, the um, investment trust gearing will be lower going forward. So I'm pretty much just have to take a detour here and explain exactly what a zero dividend preference share is and why investment trusts would use them, or indeed it was much more popular many a few years ago, Here's one that's still issuing a zero dividend preference share. What's the argument for doing that? So zero dividend preference shares, they were quite ubiquitous at one stage, but now they're relatively rare. So just so people understand, they're a particular share class, uh, invariably issued by a subsidiary company to an investment trust. Um, But the attraction is that they have a kind of predetermined uh, repayment level. So as the name would suggest, there's no dividend paid by this particular share class, but the idea being that if you pay your 100p on day one, you know that in five years' time, you'll receive a payment back of whatever it might be, 140p. Uh, and so through that, you know what your return profile uh, will be. So that does hold some attractions, clearly. Um, that's assuming that the investment trust is in a position to, to make the repayment, uh, which was a problem probably uh, the best part of 20 years ago that some investment trusts got themselves into. The issue, um, probably one of the reasons why we don't see more ZDPs in this day and age, is the fact that they're, they're effectively a form of financing, a form of debt, and actually a relatively expensive form. So in this particular instance, the, the gross redemption yield, as I mentioned, is equivalent to 5% per annum. Um, the reality is for most investment trusts, they can probably uh, obtain financing um, far lower than that in this day and age. So why would they do it in this case then? Is What do you think the rationale is? Is there some people who actually wanted it, some shareholders wanted it, or is it just convenience at this point? Well, I, I think there's a couple of things. One, that this is a geared investment trust. It's geared through zero dividend preference share. So I suspect a number of the existing ZDP holders uh, were keen to continue to have that kind of paper. In addition, it has benefits to the ordinary shares dividend stream. So you're, you're effectively using gearing, but uh, you're not paying for that. That's effectively what the ZDP provides. Uh, and so the benefit, therefore, is that um, you can pay a higher dividend on your ordinary share class. Another example of this uh, would be Aberforth have uh, a not dissimilar structure. Aberforth are responsible for two investment trusts, uh, and one of them is, is effectively uh, a geared via a ZDP. So the yield on Premier Might and Global Renewables Trust uh, at the moment on historic basis is about 6.9%. And uh, as I said, an element of that would be the fact that it deploys gearing. Though to be fair, given that the gearing is now going to be lower, they, the, the board have said that uh, revenue earnings and dividends are also expected to be lower. So don't expect that 6.9 to be uh, necessarily maintained. Right. So this is really a sort of example of financial engineering, if you like. And 
and there always has to be somebody who ends up uh, paying for the fact that you've got these different share classes and who does better than who does worse. There's no such thing as a free lunch. But I suppose I should just emphasize the fact that the shareholders in the ZDP have a prior claim over the other shareholders. So if the thing was to get into difficulty and so on, they would get paid out first. And therefore, it does theoretically increase the risk of the, the other share classes. Am I right about that? You're absolutely correct. Yeah. Okay, so we're not finished with the fundraising quite yet, but we're, we're getting closer. There's some, a couple of other small, slightly complicated issues here. Let's go first to Gore Street Energy Storage. You may remember we talked about uh, Gresham House Energy Storage not so long ago, very recently, in fact, who were planning some fundraising. And what's the story with Gore Street Energy Storage? So Gore Street Energy Storage announced this week a 12-month share issuance program for up to about 250 million shares but that includes an initial issue for up to 60 million shares uh, at 100p. Uh, and that represents a discount of about 8% to the closing price just prior to when they made the announcement and a 4% premium to the uh, NAV uh, as at the end of June. And they've said that the proceeds from this placing will be used to fund new investments. Uh, and they're also targeting a dividend target uh, of 7p per annum. So we'll find out in the, in the next week or so how they get on with that one. As I recall, that Gresham House Energy Storage, we talked about that last week, they succeeded in raising $120 million. So, Gore Street Energy Storage is not going for quite that amount in the, in the first instance. No, that's right. I mean, Gore Street is, is a smaller investment company, so its market cap is just around about the £90 million pounds worth level at the moment. In comparison, Gresham House Energy Storage, probably about £390 million, so um, significantly larger. So just before we leave this subject, as you said, infrastructure and renewable energy have been very active fundraisers. Um, can we get any kind of idea of the, of the kind of scale of that this year without getting too far into the most recent details? But uh, they've all been pretty active, have they not? I know Greencoat, UK Wind has raised money, renewables infrastructure groups raised money twice. Some of the energy efficiency trusts have raised money and also some of the infrastructure funds, uh, Hickel and so on. So this is really all about the yield, is it? Yield is a, is a key part of the story, but also the fact that the, the, the performance records of these vehicles, um, you know, we talk about uncorrelated or lower correlation to do with the bond and equity markets. Uh, and clearly with infrastructure, there are different things driving the returns for those particular asset classes. So I think that's one of the key attractions as well. Um, in terms of the amount of money raised in the infrastructure space for the first 10 months of the year, apologies, I don't have the data to the end of November just yet, but it's something like 1.5 billion uh, across a range of investment companies. And to put that into perspective across the whole investment companies uh, sector for their first 10 months of the year, we saw 5.8 billion raised. So a, a significant slug have, has gone into infrastructure. And that's been the pattern that we've seen over a number of years now. And this is despite the fact that the shares in all these infrastructure funds do trade at a premium, or most of them do. What's been happening to the ratings in these two sectors, the infrastructure and the renewables? Yeah, the ratings are still very strong. Um, so the, the the average for the, the kind of more general infrastructure funds, probably about 16% average premium at the moment. It's a little bit lower than that on the renewable energy side, probably about 12%. But if anything, I think that probably reflects that there's been a bit more money raised uh, recently on the renewable energy side. And invariably, uh, you see the placings come out at a slightly lower level than the existing share price. So that's probably a little bit of a headwind for some of those ratings. But effectively, they have been uh, very strong. 
So I guess the issue is this kind of issuance might go on until we reach sort of saturation point for the time being. Is, is that possible? Or do you think there'll be more coming? Are there, are there any significant players in the two sectors which haven't raised money yet, do you think might, might come along? I mean, there'll always be uh, one or two who've raised less money than others. That's, that's undoubtedly true. But I think one of the issues here is not just the fact they've got premium ratings and therefore, in theory, uh, well-placed to raise additional money. They have to be confident they can deploy that capital on a timely basis and they do so in a way that doesn't dilute their existing return profile. So one of the things that many of the um, practitioners in this space talk about is the fact that it's getting more difficult to find attractive invest investable opportunities um, without taking a bit of a haircut on returns. We've seen as a result of that, a number of them look to broaden their mandates. You know, if they've been invested in one particular strategy, so if they're in solar, maybe look to put a bit more in wind, or if they've been UK-based, maybe look to kind of broaden out geographically. So that's a reflection of the fact that although an attractive marketplace, it's one where it's seen a lot of capital inflows at the moment. And I guess one of the other points, which I think you made in a note you put out this week, is that if you compare the yield on these trusts, even if you come in as a shareholder who's paid a premium to get into these things, the yields still compare very favourably with, obviously, the yields on gilts or cash or, or even index link gilts. So there's, there's actually been widened slightly because the yields have been declining because of the pandemic and other reasons this year on government bonds. Yeah, I think that's right. So again, the average yield on a, on a more general infrastructure fund at the moment is probably 4.5%. On the renewable energy infrastructure funds, it's, it's higher. It's probably nearer to 5%. So again, talking about uh, Greencoat UK Wind, on a historic basis, their yield is above 5%, 5.4%. On uh, TRIG, the Renewables Infrastructure Group, as discussed, their yield again is over 5%, 5.2%. So clearly that is attractive in a, in a low interest rate environment. But as we also we discussed before, the uh, in the renewable energy ones, there is slightly more risk attached to those because to a certain extent, they are always dependent on what happens to energy prices. Uh, they can protect themselves against that, but uh, there's always that risk. And their energy prices are more volatile than uh, than some of the other projects which the infrastructure funds are investing in. I mean, this week we've actually seen the oil price go up quite sharply and uh, it's obviously commodities are doing well at the moment. So that uh, in the short term will probably help them. But uh, longer term, you think it might be another issue. Would you, would you think that's a fair comment? Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. Um, I think when these vehicles were kind of originally launched, uh, a lot of them had very long-term revenue streams, which were backed by subsidies effectively. As time has gone on, there has been greater and greater exposure to the energy price. And, uh, you know, people will have different views on that, but it becomes a slightly different return profile. So that is certainly a consideration. So that's it from fundraising this week. Let's move on to talk about some of the results. Again, there have been quite a lot. And it's probably worth making the point that all the interim results we're seeing now are all for the period to the 30th September or 31st of October in some cases. And this, as we mentioned last week, has been the period since the, the low point in the market back in the last week of March, 23rd of March was the low point. So these figures are all going to look quite good in, in absolute terms. But as always, the issue is much to do with relative returns when we're trying to judge how well they're doing. But the numbers will often be quite big. You wouldn't expect them to repeat at this level in future. So let's start, though, with a Linsel Train, a very popular investment trust and a very uh, unique one in, in certain ways. Uh, they've had some results. And what, what have they had to say? That's right. They had their interim results out to the end of September. Uh, and in that period, they generated an NAV total return of about 21%. Uh, and that was slightly below the MSCI world. That came in at 24%. 
um, but significantly higher than their 2% benchmark. In share price terms, not quite as impressive, actually up 13%. Uh, and that was a reflection of the fact that the, the premium on this investment trust actually contracted during that time. If people are unfamiliar with this one, probably the, the key investment in its portfolio is its holding in Linzel Train Limited, which is the investment manager responsible, obviously, for this investment trust, but also Finsby Growth and Income. Um, that's been a huge success story, uh, responsible for assets under management of about 22 billion now and that uh, once again was the biggest contributor to to performance it was up 25 percent and in fact the holding in that company uh, represents about 47 percent of the nav indeed it's been a remarkable story and of course that is one explanation for why the premium on linsel train in the not so distant past got up to very high levels indeed because they were having a lot of inflows into their various funds which have all got terrific track records of, uh, and at least until this year and as a result of that, the value of their holding in the management company, which is linked to how well they're doing as a business, shot up. And at some point, we reached almost 70 or 80 percent at one point. And uh, if you'd not sold then, you would have obviously suffered quite a lot since then. But still a very interesting vehicle. And Nick Train, the manager, well, now has quite a high profile and uh, he's always worth following. OK, let's move on and talk about another investment trust, which has done even better in the same kind of area, but it's done better. And that is Monk's which is managed by Bailey Gifford, who, as we said many times, are, are on a bit of a roll at the moment. So Monk's had its uh, interim results out to the end of October. And during that time, its NAV total return was up about 27%, uh, and that compared with a 10% uh, increase for the FTSE World Index, so um, significant outperformance. And in share price terms, they were up 26%. Though, as ever with Bailey Gifford, the emphasis is on long-term uh, returns. And since the management team and, and the strategy was changed back in March, 2015, this investment trust has generated an NAV total return of about 132%, and that compares with 71% for the index. And in share price terms, even better, 171%. So it's had a very good run uh, over the last five years. It's obviously, as you would expect, of a Bailey Gifford uh, investment trust. It has a very much a kind of growth focus, though different from its stablemate uh, Scottish Mortgage. It's got a, a much broader portfolio. Um, Charles Plowden, uh, the manager, has been responsible for this one for five years or so. Uh, and his mantra is he's looking to invest in companies that um, have the potential to double their share price over a five-year period. So uh, again, interesting insight into the mind of a growth investor. They've made some changes to the portfolio during this period. They're looking at internet companies, as perhaps you might expect, but also uncorrelated growth names and BHP, Billiton and Rio Tinto, uh, were um, offered as examples of those, and also holdings with bleak near-term demand. Um, so what does that mean? Well, he's backing companies such as Ryanair, Adidas, uh, and Estee Lauder, to give some examples. So as mentioned, a much broader portfolio than um, Scottish Mortgage. I think I mentioned this before, but I dare say I'll have to mention it again, which is that the Investment Trust Handbook, which is coming out next week, is uh, got an interview with Charles Plowden, which is very interesting. He looks back on his time at Bailey Gifford and... Uh, uh, because he's not only the manager of Monks, he's also been the uh, senior partner and then co-senior partner of the firm, which is a partnership. Uh, and he, he talks about the success of the firm and also uh, gives away some interesting insights into the other business they have. So their success in investment trusts and why he likes them and why Bailey Gifford likes the investment trust structure. Very interesting issue. But he's retiring, of course, next year. So what's going to happen? If they do have a team-based approach there, but do you think that's going to be uh, a significant factor? Is that likely to lead to some uh, concerns about whether the new manager can keep up the pace? 
no, I don't think there will be any concerns. No disrespect to uh, Charles Plowden, who has done a, a great job for shareholders, but it is very much a team-based approach already. Uh, so Spencer Adair, who's already one of the co-managers, he will assume responsibility uh, and there is a, a kind of wider team in place. So we would not expect uh, any change in the investment approach or the, or the rationale at all. Well, that's good to hear. Let's talk about uh, some other results now in different sectors. Let's start with uh, Seneca Global Income and Growth. Uh, they've had some interims. What do they do and what's the, uh, what's the story there? So Seneca Global Income and Growth had its interim results out to the end of October. Um, NAV total return up about 10.5% in that period, and they measure themselves against uh, CPI plus 6%, which equates to about 36 during that time. So they outperformed. Um, the share price total return also about the same, about 11% or so, and they've got a zero discount policy. So a good period for Seneca Global Income and Growth particularly from uh, the specialist assets. So this is a multi-asset uh, investment trust, a whole range of uh, assets, equities, uh, fixed income, and what we call specialist assets. Uh, and within the last bucket, uh, you find a number of investment trusts. So they've benefited from holdings in companies such as uh, UK Mortgage and Marion Chrysalis. Uh, and I think they've got a holding in hypnosis as well. Yes, it's always interesting to look at investment trusts which invest in other investment trusts. It's uh, one of the ways you can pick up some interesting research ideas if you look at their annual reports and find out why they've invested in certain investment trusts and not in others. But there's a few. There's some well-known ones like Might and Global Opportunities and Capital Gearing. Uh, but it's always a useful kind of added insight you can get by looking into what they're doing. Of course, they won't always be right, but uh, it can often give you a, a, a jump start. So we know that Seneca, the management company, has been taken over recently. What do we know about that? And, and who, who is now the, uh, the manager of that trust? Yeah, that's right. So the, the manager has been acquired by Momentum Global Investment Management, uh, and that acquisition has been completed. They've they made it quite clear that there's no changes foreseen to the management team or the process or anything of that nature, though the name will change. Obviously, Seneca is no longer the brand, so we can expect to see momentum i guess uh, creeping to the name uh, in due course well let's move on then uh, away from that sector into the uk let's start with uh, bmo uk high income we've talked about uh, a couple of other trusts recently which uh, have a kind of high income branding if you like that so they're promising uh, higher yields than uh, your ordinary equity income trust so what's what have they had to do how have they been doing so they announced the interim results for the six months to the end of september the NAV was up nearly 16% during that period, and that compared to a rise of 7% for the FTSE All Share. It's worth noting that they've got two share classes with this particular investment trust. It's a little bit of a different one. They have a, an ordinary share class, um, which a, a normal dividend is paid. And they also have a B share class, uh, which receives a capital repayment equal to the dividend. So it's a slightly unusual structure. This uh, investment trust used to be called Investors Capital a number of years ago. It's run by a chap called Phil Webster and obviously enjoyed a decent period during that six months. Outperformance was a result of stock selection and a gearing. Though the revenue per share was down 31% year on year, but the board intends to at least maintain the level of dividends for the current financial year using revenue reserves as necessary. So they've outperformed in the last six months. How have they done over the year and how does that compare? In other words, are they one of those who suffered more than others during the sell-off and have now bounced back more? Or is it just that they've got a better track record over, over the whole period? Yeah, certainly over the last 12 months, their NAV is down just slightly about 2% uh, and that compares with a fall of 5% for the, the, the FTSE All Share. So 
Um, they have outperformed on a relative basis over the last 12 months. And the shares trade at a discount or, or better than that? They do trade on a discount, so probably about a 9% discount uh, or so. The yield on the shares, obviously slightly different on the B shares, but on the ordinary shares, it's uh, just short of 6%. So let's briefly then mention another income trust or one that advertises that, which is Chelverton UK Dividend, SDV. Uh, Chelverton is a boutique, a small boutique fund management firm, I think it's fair to say, but they've had some interims and what did they do? That's right. They had their interim results out for the six months to the end of October. Um, their NEV was down slightly during that period, down by about 3% or so, and that compared with a return for their benchmark of 2%. Uh, again, you mentioned uh, that the dividend is an important part of this particular story, uh, and they've announced their second interim dividend of 2.5p, and the intention from the board is they want to maintain this level of dividend growth, and uh, they're projecting a four-year dividend of 10p. And again, they're willing to use revenue reserves uh, in order to do that. Um, this is a, a geared play on effectively the UK small cap sector, um, and that's one of the reasons why they're yielding on a historic basis about 6% or so at the moment. And of course, given how good um, November's been as a month in the stock market, we would expect to see more of these trusts doing quite well or better than they were. And uh, as a result, their concern about dividend capacity might be lessening. In other words, investors might see a better chance of getting the dividend that they were hoping for without necessarily having to use revenue reserves if this kind of growth continues, which of course we don't know yet. And let's talk about Odyssean. We mentioned them recently. OIT, they're on a uh, 5% discount or thereabouts. They've had some interims as well. They're, again, an interesting uh, little specialist trust. What can you tell us about them? Yep. So they had interim results out to the end of September. A pretty decent period. NAV total return up 17%, though actually they were behind their their benchmark, which was up 28%. Although, um, again, I think you've got to look at uh, their performance record um, really since they launched, which was a couple of years now. And and since they launched, they're up uh, NAV terms about 28% significantly outperforming both the majority of their peers and actually their their index, uh, which was up 4%. So the long-term record is still very strong. It's a very concentrated portfolio, about 20 or so holdings. The managers, Stuart Widdison and Ed Wilczarski, have this kind of private equity investment approach to um, publicly listed companies. They really look at the intrinsic value of the investments that they get involved with. And then quite often they look to engage with with the companies um, and they're very hot on the kind of corporate governance issues. And in fact, one of the things that they announced with these interim results is that they're going to implement a negative screening of, of certain types of investments. Um, they're working with a specialist provider of ESG data to insist on the whole uh, engagement process. But they've seen their fourth takeover bid in the portfolio since their launch. A company called Alimentis uh, received a takeover bid. And that's probably what you would expect given their investment approach, that the fact that they are very focused on value, not to be confused with value investors there. So in a sense, uh, if they're approaching in a private equity way, they uh, will have quite a good insight into how other private equity uh, managers will be thinking, and therefore they might have an advantage in in identifying those uh, trusts which are at risk of being taken over, shall we say, or taken private as well. That's an interesting angle there. I see you've made a note saying that the board is keen to grow the fund in order to attract a wider audience of potential shareholders. Well, who wouldn't want to do that, I guess, when you're that kind of size? But presumably they have to get their shares up to um, NAV or possibly a premium before they can do that by issuance. So do they have anything else in mind, do you think? Is that a clue to some other kind of activity they might be undertaking? Well, I mean, the, if you look at the rating where they, where they are at the moment, they're probably on about 
somewhere between a 2 and a 3% discount. So not a million miles away from the hallowed land of a, of a premium rating. I think uh, knowing the management team and the board, they recognise that with a market cap of about 108 million, it's a reasonable size, but equally it's a probably a little bit too small for, for some type of uh, investors. And we've talked about the wealth managers before, uh, and particularly the larger wealth managers and how um, they've, they've almost outgrown uh, investment trust companies with a market cap of around 100 million. So I think they're quite keen to grow, to attract a wider uh, shareholder base and you know, build on their good results to date. We're going to move on to the property sector, which we're not going to cover every property trust because there's quite a sort of similar story developing across many of these uh, property investment trusts. But let's uh, start by looking at the two BMO ones, BMO Commercial Property Trust, BCPT, and BMO Real Estate Investments, uh, BREI. These are two uh, of the of the better known, I guess it's fair to say, uh, property investment trusts. Can you uh, summarize their, their story, what they've been saying? Yeah, so it's a, it's a good news story, basically. Um, BMO Commercial Property Trust announced that their monthly dividend would be increased. It's going up to 0.35p, and that's up 40% from their previous monthly rate, and that's equal to 70% of their monthly rate that was paid up to March 2020. So in common with a number of property uh, investment companies, they suspended their dividend at that stage, obviously against the backdrop of the coronavirus, uh, they've reinstated that dividend, uh, albeit at a lower level, and now they're slowly increasing. So that's good news, and that's a reflection of the fact that rent collection is ahead of levels originally feared when the board suspended the dividend earlier this year. So just to put some numbers around that, they've collected 85% of the rents due for the second quarter, and 86% for the third quarter, and not dissimilar number for the fourth quarter. And, and again, it's a similar story of BMO Real Estate's Investments, They've declared a quarterly dividend of 0.85p, uh, and they're in, running in their financial year to the end of June 2021. But that quarterly dividend is up 36% on the previous rate, albeit it does remain 32% below the pre-pandemic quarterly rate. But again, this is a reflection of better than expected uh, rent collection statistics. And again, they're, they're um, now collecting in over 90% of their rents for the Q2, Q3, and not too far off that level in Q4. So that is a positive indicator, as you said, if uh, rent collection rates are improving, because obviously the, uh, the dividend and the, and the rental income that's coming into these trusts is a key factor in how you value them. And therefore, that has an impact on the discount and so on as well. Let's compare that with Custodian REIT, which has been trading on a much narrower discount than, than the two BMO trusts. Um, why is that? And uh, what, what have their interim results been and how do they compare? Custodian REIT have their interim results out to the end of September. Um, their NAV per share was actually down 6% in that period, though actually when you look at it on a total return basis, the, the fall was down about 4%. So a few things going on here, but probably just to look at the dividends, they've declared aggregate dividends of 2p per share in the period, and that was 33% ahead of the 1.5p minimum announced back in April. And also it's fully covered by net cash receipts. So again, in terms of rent collection, they're talking about levels of 88% and they expect that to be greater than 90% uh, for the period once they've uh, had a few chats with their, their tenants. Uh, and now let's just move on quickly to a couple of others. And we've got uh, Civitas Social Housing, which is in a very different segment of the market. And also residential secure income, who I've uh, unfortunately had to tease in the past because their income has not turned out to be not quite as secure as they were hoping. That's RESI, but that's a, I think they've run by a, a well-regarded property people. 
so Quinn, you summarise uh, the results from those two? Yep, so Civitas Social Housing, they had interim results out to the end of September again. Their uh, NAV per share was up very, very slightly, but it was up. And again, earnings per share, which is also one of the key focuses, that had increased as well. They, that stood at 2.49p, and that was up from 2.29p in the similar period in 2019. So what does this mean? It means the fund is on track to meet its annual dividend target of 5.4p per share, uh, and actually they've collected uh, or they've had dividend cover of 100%. So uh, as perhaps you might expect in, in the kind of social impact housing market, there's been minimal impact from COVID-19. Uh, and so it seems to be a pretty good story. And they're talking about identifying a pipeline of £180 million worth of property as well. Uh, in the case of residential secure income, they have their annual results out to the end of September. During that period, during that year, their NAV was down uh, about 3% or so, though actually on a total return basis, it was up slightly, obviously, given the, the income received. And actually, during the year, they received in 99% uh, of, of their rent. But in terms of the adjusted earnings per share, they were up as well, up about 3.5% to 2.9p. Uh, so the total dividends for the financial year were 5p per share. So obviously, in advance or higher than their earnings per share. And actually, um, one of the things they talked about in the results was their plan to fully cover the dividend by 2022 financial year. And they've got various uh, plans and means and ways of doing that. Well, I suppose if you do give yourself the name residential secure income, you do have to make a big effort to do just that. Otherwise, uh, people might wonder whether they've, uh, even with these uh, exceptional circumstances, whether they're not getting what they were promised. Finally, in the property sector, let's talk about Tritax Eurobox, which again is in a very different sector, one that's been doing very well. They've had annual results out as well. So how do they would compare, for example, to uh, residential secure incomes? results over the same period. So over the same period to the end of September, their NEV per share was up about 5% or so. So a pretty decent return compared with certainly most commercial property period. Uh, so the total return, so including the, the revenue and dividends and everything, that's up about 11%. And that's ahead of their long-term objective of 9% per annum. So they talk about refining their acquisition strategy uh, to looking at a more value-added approach with the aim of acquiring more assets earlier in the development cycle. Um, so where are they in terms of the dividend? Well, they declared uh, a dividend of 4.4 uh, euro cents, and that's up from 3.4 uh, in the previous financial year, so a significant increase. And the board expects the dividend to gradually increase, and they're aiming to uh, distribute 1.25 euro cents per share for the quarter ending 31st of December 2020. So what we've seen in the market as well recently, I mean, there have been a very positive response to the results of the two BMO funds, which of course were on some of the widest discounts in the sector. They went out to nearly uh, 45 or 50% at one point. So what's been happening generally to discounts in the sector? I, I should mention also, out of fairness, looking at the data, the only trust in the commercial property sector at least according to the AIC numbers anyway, that's delivered a positive total return over the last 12 months, is residential secure income. So I have to put what we said about them in context. They are a very highly regarded team and they've actually managed to make a very tiny bit of money for their shareholders over the past year, which I think is uh, reflects creditably on them. So that's, that's fair dues where fair dues are required. But in terms of the sector overall, there's been some movement in discounts, I think. No, that's right. We have seen discounts narrow. I mean, clearly a number, not all, but a number of these property funds have quite a degree of 
sensitivity to the economy. So as the outlook has improved, so have they been re-rated. The average discounts across the UK commercial property funds at the moment, probably um, just inside at 20% or so. They're saying that there are still some um, commercial property funds on wider discounts. So we mentioned the BMO funds, they're probably wider than a 30% discount uh, at the moment. So quite a degree of variation, but the trend is to see these discounts narrow. So finally, we're going to move on to the specialist sector and talk about the results there. We're going to start with um, Augmentum Fintech, which is a uh, relative newcomer to the market and is performing quite well and very popular at the moment. That's right. It's trading on uh, quite a significant premium rating. Uh, These were the interim results for the six months to the end of September. In that time, the NAV was up 3%, though actually the share price was up 90%, which sounds incredibly impressive but probably doesn't take into account that it did see um, quite a significant derating in, in February and March. So over this calendar year to date, the share price is probably up about 30, 31% or so. But uh, since Augmentum Fintech's IPO, the unrealized IR on its investments so is probably about 14% or so. They continue to make follow-on investments, um, but uh, it looks like some pretty decent progress with the portfolio, which consists of about 18 holdings or so now. The largest is in a company called Interactive uh, Investors, which uh, people may be familiar with, the platform, uh, and that represents 17% of the portfolio. So um, certainly making progress here. Splendid. We're going to mention 24 Income Fund, which has made a good recovery from it. It took a bit of a hit during the crisis uh, early this year. They've also had some interim results. Tell us about them. That's right. So they had their interim results up to the end of September. Uh, NAV total return of 18%. They've paid two dividends in that time, 1.9p and 1.5p. So that's moving in the right direction. And I've also declared since the period end, 1.5p dividend, and that is in line with the, with the policy. So they, they, they seem uh, pretty confident in their ability to meet the, the target. In terms of the underlying portfolio, the asset class has outperformed certainly the initial expectations in the aftermath of the, the global shutdown. The manager did point out um, that uh, there's some good opportunities in the European uh, ABS market, uh, and they've also rotated out of some of the liquidity assets during this period uh, and into some mezzanine RMBS and uh, CLO positions as well. Right. So these are complex debt securities they're investing in and not the thing that you and I would be able to analyse. Well, I certainly couldn't. And therefore, on the basis you shouldn't invest in things you don't understand, the great Warren Buffett advice. If you're going to think about this kind of market, you're going to want to go to a specialist manager rather like uh, 24, who do specialise in these things. And even then, you have to take a bit on trust. And finally, Simon, we come to the last trust we're going to talk about this week. And that may surprise you is Hypnosis Songs, S-O-N-G, one of our regular commentary, because they've actually produced some results at last this year. Well, I say at last, they're producing their latest interim results. They have had one set of results before that. And they are making good progress, as uh, as we've been discussing over the weeks. Uh, what, what's been the story there in terms of results? That's right. So they had their interim results out for the six-month period to the end of September. So their operative NAV was up uh, 7% in that time. And that reflected the fact that they moved their discount rate from 9% down to 8.5%. Uh, and this was something they'd flagged. And they said that that would be a conservative way forward. Uh, and that's obviously had a benefit in terms of their operating NAV. Um, but as you say, the story is still good. They're actually now slightly geared. Um, so they are actually still uh, deploying capital 
And in fact, uh, what they've said is that, they, that they've got an active pipeline of about a billion pounds worth. Uh, and in fact, the board is exploring a new uh, equity fundraise. On the dividend side, obviously a very important part of the story, the annual dividend target has actually been increased by about 5% to 5.25p. Yes, but it's an interesting story because it is so novel and it offers something which, if they can deliver it, will be very valuable, which is uh, a reliable income stream, indeed a growing income stream, we suspect, which will behave in an uncorrelated way. So that is obviously offers some diversification benefits as well. I think that's one of the reasons, apart from the novelty factor and the, and the interest of the fact that it's doing music that has been behind its success. The interim results were interesting for a number of reasons. I had a, I had a quick look at those. I mean, it's well worth looking at if you are interested in this uh, particular trust. They do go into quite a lot of detail about the catalogues that they own and how they account for them and why they change the discount rate and so on. Uh, it is only an interim report, but there's a lot of detail there. A couple of points I noticed. One is interesting that they obviously depreciating the catalogues they acquire over a 20-year period, and yet we've no idea whether that is the effective life of these royalties or not. That's quite interesting. And also, of course, the fact that these are independently valued as well. It's not just the directors making the assumptions behind the valuation. They do hire an independent valuer. But it is an interesting uh, company, and it's, it's certainly interesting to look at the results. And uh, clearly, as you say, they're looking to raise even more money. They have been, I think... Certainly the end of September, they were the biggest secondary issuer so far this year. Whether that's changed because of the recent activity, I don't know. But uh, they've certainly been very active and uh, there seems to be almost unlimited appetite for what they do at the moment. Just tell us finally, how have the shares been performing and the rating of that fund in in, in the wake of all this fundraising? You normally expect uh, that might uh, have a bit of an impact on on the discount premium situation. But they're probably trading on a, on a very, very slight discount at the moment, probably about 1% or 2%. Um, their share price did come off a little bit over the last month or so, but actually it's seen a good recovery in the last few weeks. Um, so trading not too far off its NAV at the moment. Finally, why we just look at what's happened in the market in the last, uh, shall we say, the last week or the last month. I mean, there have been some movers. Uh, we've mentioned some of them. The BMO Property Funds being one example. Is there anything else you'd like to pick out in terms of winners and losers over this recent market uh, period? Certainly over the last week, as you say, the two BMO funds that we mentioned, uh, they've enjoyed a good run, up, both up over 10%. Aberfall split level income. Uh, we mentioned investment trusts that um, have zero dividend preference shares, and that's one. They've benefited, obviously, from being geared, but also their exposure to the UK small cap marketplace uh, and that value investment style. That's come through very strongly. Uh, we also talked about Invesco income growth uh, and the news in terms of their merger proposals. And unsurprisingly, their share price has benefited on the back of it. They're up over uh, 10% over the last week or so. In terms of those names that have just struggled a little bit recently, it's a bit of a mixed bag, to be perfectly honest. Interestingly, Augmentum Fintech is one that uh, share price has just softened a little bit of late, down about 4% or so in the last week. But though, as mentioned, they've had a good run so far this year. And I think the only other thing I would pick out maybe is um, we've seen a, a good performance, certainly the NAV level from uh, Temple Bar, the, the Value Investment Trust, and also from a couple of the smaller companies' trusts, which have really uh, rocketed, having been very badly hit during the, the crisis. So at the moment, things are all looking good. We don't know whether that's going to stay that way, but we will find out. Simon, thank you for your time again, and we look forward to uh, speaking again next week. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. 
you can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening, and please keep safe in these difficult times.